Hi, my name is Kunal, and welcome to the Geeks of the Valley podcast, which connects with some of the brightest minds globally who are leading their respective industries today to discuss the hottest upcoming industry trends and how their work is affecting the global economy. This morning from Singapore, we have the partner of Golden Gate Ventures joining us. Please welcome Michael Linz. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And how are things over there in Singapore, especially in light of COVID? Um, I would say that Singapore has been uh, faring uh, very well. Um, the, the number of cases have been uh, have been extremely low. It's been in the one or two cases a day. Uh, at most, uh, most of them are zero within, within the community. Um, there, there is a, um, a number of imported cases, uh, but I would say overall um, can't complain. You know, we've been um, uh, slowly going back to the office. Uh, the, the shops and the restaurants are open. Yeah, so it feels like life is coming back uh, to normal, um, except that we still um, are limited in terms of our travel. So, so not bad compared to the rest of the world. It looks like you guys are slowly coming off that circuit breaker. Um, yeah, so the situation in, in both the US and, and Europe um, seems pretty dire. Um, uh, of course, I, I do hope that my friends in the US and, and Europe uh, will, will see improvement in their situation uh, very soon. Um, but yeah, it, it looks like it, um, it's going to take a few months before things get better. For sure. And uh, let's jump into the first question here, shall we? Sure. Tell me about yourself and your background and kind of where you grew up and, and how did it lead you to becoming a partner with Golden Gate Ventures? Um, so I'm, I'm Dutch, born and raised. Uh, my parents are from the Dutch Caribbean. Uh, they, they moved uh, to the Netherlands from Aruba at a, um, at a very young age. Um, they were, I think it was early, early in their early 20s. Um, so I'm born and raised in uh, in the Netherlands, uh, in a small town called uh, Dordrecht. Um, I won't ask you to pronounce it because it's very difficult with the with the g. Um, so I spent most of my life there. Um, I've always been in technology, uh, kind of following my, uh, my my father's my late father's footsteps. Um, he was an engineer at the um, at the local energy company in in Rotterdam, um, and I always aspired to be in uh, in technology as well. So I decided to um, um, initially do a very technical study, uh, which is more on, uh, on coding and development. And then eventually went to university where I did a mix of uh, information technology and, and business administration. Um, then after my graduation decided um, I, I wanted to remain in tech. Uh, so my first job was at ING. They had a large insurance company um, uh, back in the Netherlands and they were starting to build their first e-commerce company. And, and mind you, this was back in 1998, so that's a while ago. And um, that, that first e-commerce company was very interesting because it, it felt like an in-house, an in-house startup. And what they wanted to do is um, they wanted to build an internal comparison site, uh, which actually helped the end consumer um, compare different insurance products. And this, this was my first um, I would say kind of my first steps into uh, into the startup world, uh, but then within kind of the safe space of uh, of a corporation. And so after about four or five years, I decided that you know startup life is something that I wanted to pursue. So ended up um, building a company with um, two of my neighborhood friends. So we, we built the company. Name was Enion. 
And um, our initial idea was to outsource um, all the IT for SMEs. So you can imagine that back in the day, people would still have their server on premise. They would still have um, they would still have their um, uh, you know their, all their computers and and their maintenance all all on premise. And we we told them what you can do is outsource it to us uh, as a company. Uh, it'll make things easier for you, better maintenance, you're always up to date, uh, and it's cheaper. So this is um, a company we started in 2000. And um, eventually, the, the company grew. And I love the fact that we, you know, we, we built our first kind of mini data center ourselves, uh, literally kind of put everything together, you know, bought the hardware and started building. Um, eventually, after this is about six, seven years, um, the company got acquired by a larger company um, in the south of the Netherlands. And I thought it was an amazing time for me to um, to explore, you know, some some other some other things in life. So I made some small investments. Um, I did a lot of advisory work, and I ended up being asked to um, uh, to be a vice chair for the uh, economic development board in uh, in Rotterdam. And this was a board that was run by um, the Dutch government, um, the Rotterdam municipality, um, and a lot of international um, you know, heads of state. And for me, it was amazing because I was only, I have to check, but I think I was only late 20s. And just amazing to work with all these, all these you know, um, experienced politicians, um, get a sense of um, public-private relationships, uh, did a lot of speaking. So learn to uh, kind of be a better be a better keynote speaker and yeah it was an amazing journey and for me it was, it was again uh, pivotal in in my entire journey because i got a much better view of what was happening internationally as well so after the economic development board i did two terms of uh, of two years again it was an amazing experience um i decided it, it it feels like a good time to go back into investing um you know with my tech background went through, uh, you kind of went through a corporate job, did some work in, in politics, um, and I wanted to go back to, to my passion. And then for some reason, I, I didn't end up investing in technology at first. Um, I ended up investing in a lot of different, uh, different companies across, across the Netherlands. Um, I, I've noticed very fast that, you know, whenever you, whenever you make investments, you kind of want to stick to stuff that you know and understand and that you're, that you're passionate about. Um, so after you're going to make a number of investments in a, in a smaller group, uh, it just didn't really work out for, uh, for none of us. Um, so we decided to close that down um, it was about four or five years later. Um, I wanted to get a, you know, get a better understanding of the, sort of the venture capital industry. So one of my good friends, uh, Steph, said, I, I, I did a course at Harvard, and I think it would be in interesting for you as well. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a new network, new energy. So I enrolled in a, a course that it was a, a private equity and a venture capital course. And uh, during uh, a few of the lessons, I was like, this is, this is amazing. Um, and I definitely want to do more, way more in, in venture. So one of my classmates, he, um, uh, he actually moved, or he lived in Singapore already. And he said, he met a, he met a young uh, fund, early fund, um, called Golden Gate Ventures, and he had a good chat with the partners. So he made an introduction. Um, I bought a ticket, flew to Singapore, uh, met Vinny, uh, met Jeffrey, and I loved the, the passion about you know the region and how they were trying to build an ecosystem and how they were investing in young talent. So I decided to um, to help them out initially, 
um, and that snowballed and ended uh, into me staying uh, and, and not leaving Singapore. So I've been here for uh, almost eight years now. Wow, Michael, what a background from startups to politics to venture. And when looking at Golden Gate Ventures as a fund, what is the fund's investment philosophy? And what are some of its most notable investments in Asia Pacific till date? Um, so we, we always wanted to um, focus on um, the rising consumer class across Southeast Asia. Um, and, and you have to imagine that in the, in the early days, it, was, um, it took us a lot of convincing uh, for investors to commit, commit to invest with us in, uh, in, in this region. Um, so our first fund, which we um, raised in 2012, was a relatively small fund. Uh, just $10 million, um, you know, mostly friends and family because, you know, back in 2011, 2012, there wasn't as much institutional capital um, looking to enter the region. So the first fund was, was mainly backed by um, high net worth individuals and a lot of friends from the, from the ecosystem. Um, in uh, 2015, uh, we saw a big rise in um, interest in Asia in general. Uh, and this was mainly driven, or a lot of it was driven by uh, investment, investments that were made in China. Um, but slowly we were seeing that people were also looking at Southeast Asia and were looking to get access to the region. So in 2015, we raised our second fund, which is a $60 million uh, seed and Series A fund. Um, and then in 2018, um, after a stellar year in 2017, we raised our third fund, which is $100 million. Um, across our fund, we actually haven't changed our investment thesis as much. Um, so it actually remained the same. So the initial um, starting point for the fund, um, as I mentioned, is the rising consumer class. Um, after that, we said, when there is a rising consumer class, um, you know, what comes next? For instance, you can imagine that if people are trying to, you know, buy goods online um, or are, are looking to um, uh, do payments online. Um, the next thing that you kind of have to do is what are the additional services that, that, that people can provide? Um, at, the, at the second point, so what you're seeing is that um, consumers are buying, uh, buying online, um, but then the companies behind that um, also need to automate and um, up, upgrade their infrastructure. So whether it's, uh, it's payments or um, inventory management, um, um, you know, anything that, that sort of helps um, the consumer journey. Um, so we're trying to look for those companies and, and invest in them. So within our portfolio, you'll, you'll see companies that are uh, in the logistics space. Uh, you see companies that are providing extremely SaaS services for, uh, for entrepreneurs. But then we've also seen other um, sectors and industry rise, such as um, education and, uh, and healthcare. Um, there's more around uh, media and content, uh, social commerce. Uh, so there's a number of, of, of larger industries that, that are now picking up as well. Michael, as you know better than I do, a lot of these low to mid-income countries in Asia Pacific are developing this richness and innovation. And in your opinion, what is the landscape like today? And can you talk more about how the ecosystem in both China and India are playing a role in the overall economic impact of the region? Yeah, I think if you look at, if you look at the landscape today, um, what is interesting is a lot of the ecosystem was 
driven by um, commerce-related companies. And even if you look at the biggest players in, uh, in Southeast Asia at the moment, whether it's uh, Grab or Gojek, um, uh, Traveloka, uh, Tokopedia, um, it is still very commerce-driven and, and, and a lot of it is consumer-facing. Um, but what we're seeing now, and, and this is where it becomes really interesting, is that the deeper layer within the, within the ecosystem are companies that are um, that are in again in the B two B SaaS space. That are companies that are now uh, looking at fertility management. Um, uh, there's there's companies that are looking at um, building uh, light versions of uh, of SAP like uh, software uh, for for SMEs. Uh, so there's there's this deep layer of of other companies that are um, you know growing at a at a very fast pace, um, and it will soon become these larger companies in the region as well. Um, one of the other things that is interesting, and this, this for me is a, is a big driver from, uh, from sort of the, the Chinese ecosystem, um, is more the use of, um, of, of deep tech in uh, consumer-driven companies. Uh, so if you look at, at healthcare, um, making recommendations, um, if you look at education, how can we differently look at uh, taking exams um, as opposed to the traditional way? So a lot of the um, sort of AI developed technology um, so kind of built in China um, is sort of slowly coming here as well. I think the other thing which is, which is important is we've always looked at China as what are the models that, that have worked there and, and how can they work for, how can they work for Southeast Asia? So, so just to give an example, if you look at the larger commerce companies and the, the larger healthcare companies and even the larger education uh, tech companies, uh, a lot of these models have been almost ported over to, um, uh, to Southeast Asia. So for us, it kind of, China gives us sort of a, a look in the future um, to see you know, what could potentially work and what, what, what can't potentially work. Um, I think India itself is a, is a different story altogether. I think the, the ecosystem in India um, sort of had their ups and downs. I still remember that in 2015, a lot of capitals looking to um, deploy into companies in, in India. Uh, but people, the investors were concerned that a lot of it were uh, paper gains um, that didn't really, uh, that didn't really um, sort of turn into actual, um, you know, liquidation events for uh, for investors. So investors were of course nervous because um, they they see their money, uh, you know, kind of being uh, locked up for for ten years, uh, but there wasn't any clear sight on any larger exit. Um, I think people are now revisiting the the India ecosystem. Uh, which, which is again good for us because it also gives attention to to us. But I say that the influence of um, the Chinese tech ecosystem for Southeast Asia is larger um, than the ecosystem in India. And Michael, being a veteran investor for the t- last ten plus years, as you alluded to earlier, how have you seen being a startup founder evolve over the last decade? And how has your personal investment philosophy? evolved with this? Um, so I'm guessing the, if, if you look at the start of uh, sort of, you know, the ecosystem 10 years ago, and the, you know, there, there were some amazing um, sort of early accelerators, you know, helping companies and, you know, companies like, um, I'll give one name, which is a company like TradeGecko, which is in the SME SaaS space. Um, they've been able to, um, you know, leverage on um, some of the accelerators that, that, that were here early days. What I, what I do notice that now is that there's a lot of support for startups um, compared to, you know, seven, eight years ago. 
um, all the big all the big brands are here: uh, Google, Facebook, uh, AWS, um, IBM, Microsoft, and they're all having programs that are supportive of startups. And whether it's you know using credits to set up your servers, um, whether it's uh, CTO sessions, doing technical architecture deep dives, you know there's so much available to kind of help founders in their uh, in in their first years. Um, on the capital side, things have definitely changed. Um, where there's more capital available, kind of across across the ecosystem. I think what, what is what is still remains uh, what still remains interesting as well is that a lot of the entrepreneurs that we, we backed initially were first-time entrepreneurs, um, and they, of course, yeah, as first-time entrepreneurs, you make you make first-time mistakes. Um, the, the the biggest, I guess, the biggest thing we um, we we learned from from that era is that a lot of a lot of these early companies need sort of hands-on advice, um, and whether it's um, sort of hiring their first senior lead or expanding to a new market, um, fundraising their next big round. But we're now seeing that a lot of entrepreneurs that are coming to market are people that have worked at big tech companies and decide to go on their own. So they, they might have spent you know the first few years at a Grab or a Gojek or a Traveloka or uh, yeah. Um, or book a park and then decide, hey, um, I want to venture out on my own and start my own business and start my, start my own startup. And those um, founders are um, noticeably more experienced because they've seen firsthand what it takes to build a company. Um, they've built up relationships. They understand what a product roadmap means. So those founders are more experienced um, and they're able just just to fundraise at a at a faster clip. Um, I've, I'm noticing that they're uh, that they're very you know hands on on the fundraising side. Um, they, they've learned to kind of get the right product product people around them. So I think the biggest difference in the the involvement of um, founders between sort of seven eight years ago to now is there's a lot of experience that founders now can lean on, and there's a big supportive ecosystem. Uh, that founders can depend on when when they start their own company. Um, I, I think when it comes to my personal investment thesis, um, I'm I'm more uh, I'm more focused on are founders able to solve and and think of how can you generate significant impact. And I'm not talking about you know social impact and don't make any don't make any revenue. Uh, I'm actually talking about is your company building or supporting um, an infrastructure um, that eventually has impact on a large demographic um, across across the region? And this can both be on the uh, B2C and the B2B side. Um, so interesting verticals for that would be um, uh, things in, in healthcare, um, logistics, uh, supply chain management, um, farming, agriculture. I think those are sort of interesting um, uh, topics from a, from a personal standpoint, what I'm trying to look at uh, and see, you know, where can we drive local or or regional innovations, and and which founders are driving that. So, Michael, now I really want to take a turn in the conversation to discuss uh, a, a few things that you hold closely to you uh, within your personal life uh, around the aspect of systematic uh, racism. And recently you recorded a documentary with Broken Chains focused around race, inequality, and the economic impact of racism. At a high level, can you speak about some of the points 
discussed in this documentary that you hold dear to you? Yeah, the, the documentary um, called Broken Chains came together um, about uh, nine months ago. Um, so after, um, after the events in the US and George Floyd, um, I felt compelled to, uh, to write an article about uh, my own experience with racism and, and sort of how I try to deal with racism and, and, and you know, try to, um, yeah, I, I guess, I guess sort of, you know, try to uh, explain to my kids what it, what it means um, uh, to, to have, to look differently um, than, than some other people. And um, in, in that discussion, I, I, I was writing down an article about, um, you know, whenever I travel, uh, what I encounter, some of the, the jokes that people make or um, not being taken seriously. Um, uh, I almost got arrested in the US uh, because I literally was trying to get into an Airbnb um, that we, of course, booked. And um, the, the police thought I was breaking, in, breaking into a home. Um, so all of these things added up, and um, I guess there was a global outcry uh, last year after after the George. So I felt compelled to to write write an article about it. Um, the article was um, um, went viral. Um, I got a lot of responses to it, and I um, the filmmaker that, that I know in in Singapore um, approached me after the article and said, "Hey, um, you know, the story is really strong and it, it resonates with a lot of people." Um, why don't you kind of make a documentary around it? Um, I, I felt that there's there's a lot of um, content available um, on on systemic racism and, and, and racial injustice. Um, but after sort of having this conversation with, with the team, um, they said, "No, we want to approach it from a different angle," um, because a lot of people tend to say when there is a people of color that have been successful in their own right um, that you know there's no it, it solves the issue of racism, and um, once you're successful, you know you don't you don't encounter any racism anymore, which is of course not true. So we we decided to kind of take the angle of um, what what does it mean uh, to create uh, generational wealth um, for for people of color, uh, because one of the larger issues when it comes to um, not getting access to education, not getting access to jobs, uh, not getting access to home ownership. Um, it, it, it usually goes back to um, there's hardly any generational wealth. So we decided to look for the, um, you know, the, the world's best experts when it comes to um, the racial wealth gap. Uh, we looked for you know, the, the, the experts when it comes to um, uh, investments in, um, in, in uh, Black and Latinx founders. Um, and all of them were, were very willing to, uh, to speak um, for the documentary. So eventually, we um, uh, we are now in the midst of uh, of shooting. We're we're hoping to finalize it in uh, in in June this year. Um, but what is interesting is that from the journey, I'm learning so much. Um, having these conversations and doing these interviews and, and doing the research, um, and it's it's unbelievable how much work uh, still needs to be done to make sure that there is um, you know racial equality and to make sure that. You know, we, we kind of solve this, this wealth gap and to make sure that future, future generations are able to kind of own a home, um, are able to um, have access to you know, every education that, that anyone else has access to as well. And then, then hopefully the, the, the mindset around, uh, around race uh, will change over time.
And Michael, how does this transfer into being a minority investor in Asia? Multiple times across different media channels and articles, you have said this phrase, that um, very, very deep phrase, I am exhausted and I want you to know why. Yeah, it, it, come, it comes from, um, it, it's, it's funny that racism can be extremely subtle and it, it can be in, uh, in a few small things. Um, someone making a joke about your skin color, um, taking longer to get to the line uh, at the airport, um, or, 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 you know, um, they, they take, your, take your side um, to kind of do, do, do a few double checks. Um, seeing surprise faces, faces when, when you walk into a board meeting uh, because they expected someone else. Um, assume that, that, that you're not able to make or drive your own career because of, because of your background. Um, and that's, it's exhausting. It's, it's exhausting to have um, sort of those conversations uh, sort of over and over again. Um, and it almost feels like you have to sort of excuse yourself for, for, for being black. Um, so yeah, I, I felt, I felt extremely tired, but I felt compelled to, to, to share it. And again, there's, there's a lot of it is, um, is, is extremely subtle. Um, but if, if it happens on you know, a very regular basis, um, it, it does get, it does get really exhausting. And for podcast listeners out there, uh, Michael's Medium article will be shared in the podcast notes. So please look below. Michael, to wrap up our call with our last question today, what piece of advice would you give to people out there from the journey you've had so far in life? Um, yeah, so, you know, if a uh, word of advice um, kind of for anyone, you know, kind of going into business, whether it's building a company, becoming a VC, working at a corporation, or, you know, any decision. Um, I think there's two, two parts that are very important. Um, the first part is, um, is to kind of, yeah, feel, you have to kind of almost feel the decision. Um, and I always say kind of feel what your gut and what does your gut tell you? And this could be anything from, um, you know, that there's a, there's a misalignment. Uh, you feel there's a misalignment between you and a potential business partner, uh, or someone that you're going to be working for. Um, when you don't feel there is a full trust, um, when you feel that, you know, um, you're not able to kind of manage expectations properly. Um, I would always, always take those feelings into account because it's important that whenever you um, commit to something, um, you know, that, that, that you're able to kind of, you know, give everything at the point in time. This, the second part is around um, sort of really taking a step back and, and trying to understand what the impact of a decision is. Um, and not saying that you, sh you should be risk averse, um, actually the opposite. I've, I've taken some huge risks in my life, um, but it, it is helpful to kind of, yeah, take a step back and understand what does this decision mean for me? Uh, is it, does it mean I'm gonna be working for 24 seven for the next six months? Um, Am I able to meet expectations? And I, am I able to voice my concerns in the group that I'm working with? So it's always helpful to kind of take one step back and say, hey, these are the things that I'm, I'm buying into um, if I make this decision. Um, I think that that is, that is my biggest, uh, biggest life lessons when it comes to sort of making important decisions in your life. Um, 
And it's also important to see you know, every now and then, um, every now and then, not always, uh, to go with the flow um, and kind of see, see where things lead you. So really kind of combining both the conscious and subconscious mind to some extent, right? The conscious mind being that you are kind of aware of what's going on around you, right? While the subconscious mind is, is a representation of, of your gut in a way. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And Michael, for people who are interested in reaching out to you or catching a cup of coffee with you, what would be the best point of contact? Um, the easiest way is just to send me the email. Um, that, is, that is the best and the faster way to, um, to reach me. Um, I, try to always, I try to always respond um, you know, relatively fast. Uh, of course, you know, <clears throat> life sometimes get away from you. Um, so it, it's not like it's possible to kind of always schedule time. Uh, but I'm always happy to, you know, give some advice or um, kind of, you know, look at look at a company and sort of give give my opinion. Um, yeah, so feel free to reach out, send me an email, um, Michael at GoldenGate.vc. Um, yeah, always happy to see where I can be helpful. Michael, it was a pleasure having you on Geeks of the Valley, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much.